And now for the teaching text. <laughs> Today we have three passages from the book of Luke for our text. The first comes from Luke 7, 36 to 50. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair and kissed them and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisees who invited him saw this, he said to, this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. He owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he forgave both debts. And now, now which of them would, will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, had not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell her, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown, but whoever has been forgiven, little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this? Who is this? Who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, "Your faith has saved you. Go in peace." And now Luke nineteen one to ten. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector and was very, and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was. Because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming this way. When Jesus reached that spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down Im immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to murmur, He has gone to be a guest of, this, of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I, have, I give half of my possessions to the poor. If I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay them 
back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And finally, Luke 23, 33, and 34. When they came to the place called Skull, they crucified him along with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided his clothes by casting lots. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Josh. Sort of a a mean trick to get you roped in with a camp story and then have you read basically the New Testament. Um, Well, well done. Today is the uh, the first Sunday in in Lent, and um, um, all right, we've got like forty five teaching texts, so let's get started. Uh, I'll I'll pray since we're talking about it. Um, Heavenly Father, uh, I just just confess. Sometimes you feel uh, great about what's prepared. And sometimes you feel like it is severely lacking, and this is one of those times. So I just pray that you would come, Holy Spirit, and you would say the things that each of us need to hear, um, that you would communicate the power um, of your mercy and forgiveness to us in a way that would not simply be an idea, but something we could really participate with and, and, and have a full share in. So God, beyond uh, even the collection of, of human ability and human story that's represented in this room, I pray that your presence and power would be known here, that your, your love would be tangible, that you would communicate by your spirit in ways that we could really hear and understand and respond. Uh, I believe that would be a miracle, and yeah, I believe you do that miracle so often, and so I ask you to do it again in the name of Jesus, amen. So Jesus begins his public ministry, the, the first words that the, uh, the gospel writer in Mark has Jesus say is, is uh, this is Mark 1, the time has come, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news. So whatever else Jesus has come to do in the world, uh, he's come to announce that a kingdom is, is coming uh, that it is at hand, that it is near, that there's some way you can reorient your life and choices and priorities around this coming kingdom and that you can have a real share in it. And then from that point forward in the Gospels, Jesus goes out and he does this, this three-year sort of public tour. And what's going on in this public tour is that he's teaching over and over again uh, what the kingdom of God is. He does it in direct sermons like the Sermon on the, Na- the Mount or the Sermon on the Plain. Uh, if, you, if you read in Luke, uh, he, he teaches these parables. The kingdom's like a mustard seed. The kingdom's like this dad who had two sons and one of them ran off. The kingdom is like a treasure buried in a field. And he's showing what the kingdom is like in teaching. But then he's also demonstrating what the kingdom is like. The kingdom is like someone who doesn't see and now they see. Someone, a community who doesn't have enough to eat and now they have enough to eat. A community that was at odds with one another and now they're reconciled. So he's, he's teaching it, he's demonstrating it, and then he seems to be regularly inviting people in to this kingdom. So he, he starts with this announcement and then he teaches, he demonstrates, he invites. And all through, right, you have these three years. But the story, we say this uh, every year around Lent, around Holy Week and Easter, Uh, The whole story slows down in the last week of his life. If you're sort of tracking the way the narrative moves, you can't miss that um, 
the, the storytelling gets slower around the end of, of Jesus' life. And, and that communicates something to us as well. Uh, as Jesus has taught and demonstrated and invited, invited us, there's something about access to the kingdom of God that's beyond those things. Uh, the kingdom of God is not something that we access simply by knowing about it or by seeing it demonstrated, as powerful as that is. It is something that we have to ha- have access to. And it seems like whatever Jesus is doing at the end of his life uh, is really is really crucial. We have to, in some way, be brought in. So all that Jesus has been saying and doing culminates in him going to the cross, and and uh, and we have a huge cross. I was just saying we're one warehouse build out away from being a megachurch. Look at this thing. This is fantastic, guys. We are on our way as a community. Come on. Um, so the cross, this mysterious, perhaps even bizarre. Um, object, you know, like torturous device. It's at the center of the Christian story. And during Lent, we're on a journey towards that cross, this center point of of the Christian story, the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. This huge party that we throw about this every year is is Easter. And for centuries, the church has used Lent as preparation for that party, preparation uh, for, for Easter, preparation to say we we realize that the cross of Jesus is not just something that was done for us, but is also something that we have a share in in the same way that we're invited into the kingdom of God. This cross is, is Jesus' cross, but it's also our, our cross. And uh, Lent is about remembering that. It's about preparation. Um, it's, about, it's about following Jesus. It's about denying ourselves. But uh, the New Testament doesn't say anything ever about denying yourself as the end in itself. It's always deny yourself so that you can take part in something better, more abundant, more full, that's, that's real life. And so um, Lent is about denying ourselves so we can taste even more beautifully um, the abundant life that Jesus has, has promised us. So every year in Lent, we follow Jesus to, to the cross. And in that journey, we realize that it is also our cross. So we can really party when we realize it is also our resurrection um, that we share in. So we're going to say, say more on that. But I think it's really interesting, you know, like, if you're trying to pick a novel, like uh, the first sentence really matters and the ending really matters. How, how, do they, how do they wrap this story up? I think it's interesting to compare Jesus' first words, uh, repent, reorient, change your life, the kingdom is at hand. And then to hear the things he utters on the cross at the very end of his ministry, at the very end of his life, the final words that he says on the cross and what they have to do with that first announcement that the kingdom of God is at hand. That's the headline, right? The kingdom of God is here. And then what he says on the cross is sort of like a filling in of all, of all that, 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 that means, uh, what we have a share in, what his death means, what, what he's promising. So this is what we're going to do during Lent, um, just so you know. We're going to take those final words of Jesus that he says on the cross. We're going to use them as a launching off point to see how Jesus is shaping a picture of the kingdom of God, how he is reframing our understanding of Yahweh, how he is inviting us to be sons and daughters uh, of, of God, how he's embodying these words that he's saying, uh, what they represent for his, his whole ministry, what they represent for us, and what they mean for the world. So simple enough. Just all that. Um, so to start, we've got three scenes from the Gospel of Luke, three three. Josh, wherever you are, thank you. Thank you for reading basically the whole gospel for us. Um, so, and, and if, you, if you just pull the main characters out of, out of each of these stories, you've got a known woman, a short con, and a gambling soldier. This kind of feels like you should say walk into a bar 
after, after that. This is the story you're like, uncle, after he's had a few at the party, like, I'll tell you the story about the known woman, the short con, the gambling soldier. You guys have an uncle like that who like kind of talks to you like, like this, and you're like, hey, <laughs> Uncle Jerry, your breath smells like whiskey. And he's like, anyway, I don't know. I don't know what your family's like. That's fine. Well, we have these three different moments in time, three, three scenes, and yet they're held together by this common theme. They're held together by a, a common word, this, I would say, uh, this common powerhouse of relational existence between human beings. So we have two scenes. The first are of uh, unexpected restoration of human beings. And then we have kind of the shocking utterance of a dying man, of uh, an offer of restoration to people who aren't even looking for it. And all of it is held together by this, forgiveness. Here's the thing. <laughs> Intimate relationships, uh, any long-term friendship, your, your family, uh, I would say almost any meaningful human collaboration uh, will fall apart without forgiveness. Like whatever else you believe about Jesus or his story or, or, or God, and you, we have people all across the spectrum of belief here. Without forgiveness, you can't make relationships last because one way or another, you're going to wrong one another, hurt one another intentionally or unintentionally, and we're going to have to have forgiveness at the heart of our relationships if, if they're going to last. And, and here's the thing. Forgiveness, when you've experienced it, it can be astonishingly freeing. It can be deeply empowering. It's, it's one of the acts that we can do with one another that helps birth new possibility in the world. It makes something that didn't seem possible seem possible. It, it, it releases one another from, from the traps that our wounds make, from, from our anger, from our grudges. Forgiveness is so powerful. Some of you will have experienced this, but in, it, it, forgiveness can make someone feel new, like they've been healed of a disease in the space of a single conversation. It's like uh, this burden was lifted off of me. I feel like entirely different. What a powerful force in the world forgiveness is. But, but we can't be too preachery about it because we know that, um, especially on a merely human level, forgiveness is not simple whatsoever. There, there are times when, especially when the offense has been particularly grievous and awful, uh, that even to think of forgiveness seems like wrong from the start. Like, no, what we need is retribution. What we need is the person needs to pay for what they've done. And, and so often that instinct does feel absolutely right. But here's the thing. Over and over again, wherever Jesus shows up, forgiveness is taking place. Uh, and it is scandalously so in a couple of occasions. That's why we had, I wanted to read not just one story, but a couple so you can see how this forgiveness shows up in, in, different, in different scenarios. Um, that, that, he, that he seems to demonstrate it wherever he, he's going, that it, it's falling off of his lips in his dying words. It must mean that whatever this kingdom of God is that, that Jesus is bringing, forgiveness is essential to it. So to get a sense of these stories, we're not going to be able to, to, to dive terribly deep into each one, but to get a sense of them as we skim along uh, the, the, the surface, I want to look at each of them in terms of the person who's forgiven, uh, the person who's doing the forgiving, and the witnesses around it. We're just going to quickly move through the details of the story. If you didn't notice them when Josh was reading them, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll hear them quickly now. So first of all, to focus for a moment on the forgiven. We have this known woman, um, 
And we don't know exactly what her transgression is, um, but there's quite a few allusions in the text that this woman lived some type of lifestyle that was outside of the accepted norms of her community, and people knew about it. She experienced some level of judgment from, from her community. We don't know, really, we don't know if she was a prostitute or a camel thief. We do not know uh, what, what she was. It'd be interesting to think about reading this story as if she was just like a camel thief. Think about that. Go back and just do that as your devotional later. Um, But the host knew something about her life. Uh, She seems to come into the room feeling deep remorse, feeling right away she's she's at the doorstep of grief about whatever's going on in her life. And Jesus says, your sins, though they are many, have been forgiven. So whatever this woman's life was, there was something about it that was deeply out of line with her own understanding of herself, with her neighbor's, and with her understanding of, of Yahweh, of, 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 of God. So uh, she fi- finds out somehow, right, like we, you didn't set up dinner by sending a discreet text and having someone come into your apartment through you know, several doors where they have to be buzzed in and closing the door. Like the, the hospitality scene in, in, first, in the first century it was, was quite different. And so word spread that this prophet teacher was gonna be in town and word spread of where he was going to be eating dinner. So this, this woman, whatever else was going on in her life, finds out that Jesus is gonna be there. And she goes, uh, she goes t- to see him. She takes a huge risk, totally uninvited, um, to see if he can help at all with the pain and regret that she seems to be feeling. This woman, whatever else she does, she, she shows us the gift of desperation. Some of you will have tasted that before. You know the power of the gift of desperation. We're like, I'm so sick and tired of being sick and tired. I'm so over this pain. I'm so over this prevailing thought in my mind. I'm so over this, be- this behavior pattern taking hold of me. I'm so over this anxiety. I'm so over this depression. I'm so over this addiction. I'm so over this pattern of broken relationships. I'm so, so over choosing people who, want not- who-, who just continually hurt me, whatever it is. So she barges in uh, with this expensive gift. Uh, and she can barely give it before she's overcome with her own tears. Um, we don't know, it, like, not every single word that's uttered necessarily in this scene is given to us. So we don't know what Jesus says. But somehow, even just in being in his presence, she begins to experience some release from the burden that she, she carried in. The host um, kind of uses the whole experience as a trick to see how prophetic Jesus is. Like, he, like, sits back and, like, you can see him cross his arms and was like, see if he knows what this camel thief's all about when she walks in. Um, and so... Anyway, all that, by the end of the scene, this is what you get. Jesus says, to, with authority, think about this for a minute. Whatever else you imagine Jesus is up to, does he claim to be God, this and that. He says, your sins are forgiven. Not your wrongs against other people. The things that you've done that have made you out of line with God, I take them away. I say they are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. What faith? I don't know, faith to barge in and have this expensive gift and stand there awkwardly and cry. Spiritual movements. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And not like go in like absence of conflict. Go in shalom. Go in total life-giving restoration of your whole person. Be new. Go in peace. So 
We have the known woman. Next story, we have this, this short con. Zacchaeus was a wee little man and a... What a song, man. Great, great melody, tremendous lyrics. Hard not to like that one. Um, so we don't know exactly what the, if she was a camel thief or, or what, what she was up to. Um, uh, if she was you know, illegally trying to get people to download gift cards for her. I don't know what she was, she, she was up to uh, out there in, in, the, in the world. But uh, we do know what Zacchaeus' sin was. Um, this man was, uh, was despised. He was, and he, had, he did it under official auspices of a uh, somewhat prestigious job, at least in the eyes of the Romans. Um, he was a chief tax collector. We know that he was a Jewish boy, and yet uh, all the promises God had made to Abraham and to, to Isaac and Jacob and to Moses, the heritage of his people, when, when the might of Rome came in, he sold all of that out. And he's like, you're looking to hire someone that can collect taxes from my neighbors? I'll be your guy. I know what everyone makes. I can travel around. And if they try to hide from me what they really have, I'll make sure that they pay up. And then he had done so well at that that he had become a chief tax collector. So every time money is changing hands, he's getting his cut. So he would have been utterly and totally despised. Not only is he making uh, his, his fortune off of the backs of his neighbors, but he's doing it under the authority of the oppressive Roman Empire that had come and was beating down uh, his, his family. So this is uh, a guy's a sellout. He's a betrayer of his family and friends. He's a con artist, and he's... Um, uh, uh, he, the picture that you get of him is that he's, he's like trapped in luxurious misery, which I think can, can sometimes be a, uh, there's a dynamic equivalent for our, our life in, in Brooklyn in 2019 sometimes. Like we have so much comfort, so much is offered us, but we can get, feel trapped in kind of a luxurious misery where the things that we have are not really giving us the life that we were we were hoping for, and, uh, and, and we can struggle with that. It also happens to mention, and, and, and this is not an insult if this is you too, but he was short. There's a bunch of stories in the Bible about, you know, short people overachieving. So, you know, like, let's just, no matter where we are on the height spectrum, let's just know God's grace is there, okay? I say that if you're a child, if you're an adult, I'm going to stop now and just say, Zacchaeus also gives us a picture of the gift of desperation. Um, we, we have this rich man who's known in the community, right, who sits there, even with his short stature, with authority and power, with the weight of, of Caesar's army sort of behind him at his desk as he collects taxes from the, from the entire village. You can imagine over the years, you know, Zacchaeus' robes have gotten nicer and nicer, so he's got this beautiful silk robe on, and now it's time he's got to climb a tree. You ever climbed a tree in a silk robe? Something to try. What had he heard about Jesus that makes him willing to endure this humiliation? He runs out. He can't, he can't find a place to, to see, so he climbs a sycamore tree, and he's like, whoever this guy is, I don't know if he's a teacher or if he's a miracle worker or maybe he had heard. Right, the first story takes place in Luke 7. This is Luke 19. Maybe the word had gotten around that I don't know on what authority, but somehow this guy forgives people, <laughs> forgives debts, <laughs> heals and restores. Something had so gotten a hold of, of Zacchaeus's hope and expectation that he climbs a tree to see Jesus. <laughs> and the thing is, and this is the bizarre thing, is that in, in the thronging crowd, we're given a picture that you, you can't even get. This is like Macy's Day Parade. You don't get there in time. You're not going to be close. And yet the thing is, it's like the whole parade's going down and Jesus sees him. 
This is the theme that shows up in both stories. Jesus sees the person and sees them all the way through. Jesus chooses him out of the crowd and he does it with urgency. He's like, get out of that tree, Zacchaeus. Like, I think Jesus had a good sense of humor. He's like, you climb the, you climb the tree with the silk robe. Let's see you get down, buddy. Come on, come down immediately. I wanna go to your house right now. Um, he wants to be with him and he challenges the expectations of everyone who's listening. And again, we don't know what he says. Maybe he's climbing down the tree and Jesus is like, pray this prayer after me. Or, but we don't have any of that recorded. All that we know is Jesus sees him and he says, I wanna be with you and I don't care what people think, I'm going to your house. And Zacchaeus almost immediately is like, I'm giving everything away, I'm a new man, take my silk robes, I'm giving you my money back, everyone up to you. Like immediately the restoration takes place so remarkably powerfully in him. He's seen, he's known, he's forgiven somehow and then he's restored and he becomes an agent of this mercy that has swept over his life. Just Here's the text. Zacchaeus stood up and said, Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. If I've cheated anybody out of anything, I'll pay back four times the amount. Jesus hadn't said any of that. This is like the overflow. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to his house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the one who had betrayed his family, betrayed his people, who lived as a scourge of their despising for years. Hey, this guy's part of the family. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. When forgiveness takes hold in this man's life, he makes extravagant motions, actions, amends of love. And Jesus restores the identity that he lost through his sin. Last, last one, the gambling, the gambling soldiers, right? These guys don't come in with no alabaster jars of perfume. They're not asking for mercy. They're not wearing silk robes. They're not climbing trees. They don't b- bring a gift. They've just, in fact, nailed Jesus to the cross, and they're gambling over his clothes. Maybe they have no sense at all of needing his forgiveness. Maybe they don't even hear his words uttered as they're bartering for his tunic, but they receive mercy. And the only record we have of, of what effect this has on them is that in Luke 23, there's an example of someone in their company who was, who was deeply moved by what he saw. In Luke 23, it says, the centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, surely this was a righteous man. Now imagine you just beaten this person beyond recognition, nailed them to a tree, you are in absolute place of power. You're gambling over their clothes that are stained with the blood that you drew out with your own whip. And now something about the way this person dies and the words that they utter on the cross directs your attention to God. He praised Yahweh and he said, surely this was a righteous man. Each of those stories, I want you just to think about the stakes for a second. Right, A prostitute, or a camel thief who, who had lived half of her life in some sort of obvious sin. 30 years of stealing from your neighbors to get rich. How about beating up and then killing the son of God? Now, what sin have you committed that you think you won't be able to be forgiven for? What thing do you imagine might just be out of the reach of the mercy of God for you? Sometimes in our shame, in our self-pity, 
we're actually just entertaining an alternative form of pride. Like we see these astonishing moves of forgiveness that Jesus makes and we're like, yeah, but my sin, my failure, my mistakes, my pattern of thinking, my pattern of behavior, my, my thing is just a little bit more serious than these folks. And that we feel like we're being humble or feel like we're taking on, but actually we're saying, <laughs> my thing is more. And we're, we're, we're trying to act like we have a higher standard than God who's saying to you, your sins, though they are many, can be forgiven. And I am willing utterly to pay the cost to make that so. These are the ones who are forgiven. The one I want us to see uh, for, for a few, few moments is the, is, is the one who forgives, the forgiver, this, this Jesus. And I'm just gonna say a couple of things about him because we're gonna have other church services and we're gonna have other services even in Lent where we're gonna talk about this forgiver. But I wanna say a couple of things about him right now that show up if you just skim right off the top of these three stories. One is Jesus takes sin personally. He takes the, the mistakes that are supposed to be, uh, right, you can sin against a human being, but most of the time when we're talking about sin in the scripture, we're talking about some way that you've come out of alignment with God. You've tried to be your own God in some way. You've tried, like one of the ways we talk about it is you've tried to meet the deepest needs of your life out of your own resources without taking God into account. So the sins we're talking about are not just obvious direct actions of, of easy to identify evil. Some of them are omissions. Some of them are heart mindsets, but whatever it is, it's between you and God first, and it has an outworking into our human relationships. But Jesus comes into interaction with people, and he's saying, hey, the thing that's between you and God, I forgive it. And this is a scandal. This is one of the reasons he gets executed is because he takes sin seriously. People keep looking at him and saying, how can you do that? How can you let somebody off the hook for their issue with God? And he's like, It's, his claim, it's one of his claims of divinity. I don't think he ever whispered it, we're the same like that. I just want to say, that was wrong. That's not how he did it. He did it differently, and I'm not sure how. Let's just move on to the next point. Relax, okay? He takes sin personally. He, he forgives you. Remember the story where they're scratching the roof, and they're tearing it apart, and they lower their friend down, their friend's paralyzed? Like all the effort, that they, they've carried him there. You see what the problem is, Jesus? He can't walk. And Jesus walks over to him, he's like, your sins are forgiven. Like, what? No, he's not walking. He's like, oh yeah, we'll also get up. But Jesus, the first thing he sees is that his sins need to be forgiven. Like this thing needs to be restored between you and Yahweh. So he takes sin personally and he, he, he seems to enact the authority to forgive it. Two is that he sees people. You're like, profound. You got that all from the text there, Pastor? But I love, like, something I, you know, like, just jumped out to me as I was reading it this week was the moment with he's in the Pharisee's house and the woman comes in and the Pharisee's like, I wonder if he knows what she's sinning. It's like, you know, like, um, and then he turns to, he says, do you see this woman? That question just gripped my heart. Do you see, do you see this person? I, I see her, I see he picked Zacchaeus out of a tree. He saw past the scandal of his life, past the rejection that had sort of defined him. He sees the people who just beaten him and are executing him. He takes sin personally and he sees people. Now, honestly, if it was just those two, I think it's not great news. We're not gonna have the gospel if it's like Jesus sees you, know, sees you all the way. He knows everything that, that, that you, that's obvious and everything that's hidden about you. And he takes sin personally. 
Jeez, okay, well, I'm not necessarily like running to Jesus in this case. But then we see this. He also absorbs the cost of offering forgiveness. And in the, in the stories, the cost seems like, it's like social retribution, like he's despised for giving grace out to people that people had said, we're gonna label them and pour our disdain on them so that we can keep our, our safe places of security and status. And Jesus breaches those expectations and moves into the people and he, and he, he offers them grace and, and he gets a little blow, you know, blowback from that. But then that's why I wanted to go all the way to the cross because I want you to see, right? Whenever you offer forgiveness to someone, a human being, people are like, why did Jesus have to die? Can't God just be like, you know what? I know you guys are, 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 are human beings and things are difficult and you've all sinned and it's okay. I'm cool with it now. Let it go. No. And that's not how you forgive either. Anytime there's been a real injury, a real wrong, what do you have to do? You have to absorb the cost of that wrong in order to offer forgiveness back. And Jesus is saying over and over again, he's demonstrating it in his life, in his teaching, in his, in his ministry, and then most fully on the cross, he absorbs the cost of giving forgiveness. In one of the first cities to sort of believe the Jesus message and form a community around it, this, this church in Corinth, there's a summary written about what Jesus does on the cross, and, it, and it's this. I think it's one of the, 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 the most concise, helpful explanations for what, what Jesus is doing. He says, all this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ. All these words are, are so jam-packed, and, and we're only going to have a second to mention them, but all of this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ. And gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. Not counting people's sins against them. And he's committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. And here it is. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. The scope of that is full reconciliation, right? Forgiveness is a part of full reconciliation, but like it's like let the offense be dealt with and then let the embrace be experienced, right? That's full reconciliation, and forgiveness is a crucial part of that. But this is just super quickly. There is some crappy theology going around in some popular books right now, which is not a new phenomenon whatsoever, but um, that's sort of like, you know, God was child abusing Jesus by sending him to the cross, and we need to have an atonement that takes all, 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 all of the violence out uh, of, of, of the story. Sorry, that's not going to work. Um, and, and, and if this controversy is, is, is lost on you, then just, just like doodle for two seconds. Um, but Jesus was not a third party between us and God that God punished on our behalf. Jesus is God himself. You see what it says? God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. Like, this is, is really important. Um, Jesus was God taking on himself the pen, penalty of our sin so that our union with him means that his death becomes our death and his resurrection becomes our, our resurrection. This is, it's not quite right to say, say it this way, even though this is the way we sort of like default and shorthand sometimes in, the, in telling the story of Christianity to tell like this, that, that, um, that to say that Jesus died so we don't have to, that's actually not the gospel. It's that 
Jesus died because he was in union with Yahweh the Father and was able to absorb the full penalty of human sin and mistakes on himself so that somehow mysteriously by faith we come into union with Jesus and his very death becomes our death. So our old way of life, our way rooted in selfishness is united with Christ on the cross. It's not like we're just distant from him and he did this thing for us. We are in union with him And weirdly, mysteriously, the fabric of that union is faith. Which some of us might think, that's like the flimsiest thing ever to unite me to this work of the cross. But that's how God has chosen to do it. It's like a relational trust and confidence that gives you access to the deepest healing power the universe has ever known. And the way in is to see I'm united to that person who's inviting me all the way in by faith. Miroslav Volf, a professor at Yale who went through, you know, like in his life, he knows a lot about forgiveness because he lived through the atrocities of communist Yugoslavia. And he has a book called Free of Charge. I commend it to you. Second half is all about forgiveness. And he says this about this, this force, that this fabric in the spiritual world that unites us to Jesus. And he says, Faith isn't some strange, empty work we do for God so that God will give us Christ. Faith is our hands open to receive Christ whom God has given. If I'm giving you a present, all you need to do is open your hands and it will be yours. God gives, faith receives. And because God gives, even before the hands of faith open to receive, faith never goes away empty-handed. To have faith is to have Christ and with Christ a new life and forgiveness of sins. Jesus absorbs the cost and the fabric by which we're woven to him in union is faith. The last thing I'll say is that he offers full restoration. That, that, that letter written to that city church in Corinth is like, it's a message of total reconciliation. And it's like your life's been so reconciled to God that you become a, an, an ambassador of that reconciliation. Everywhere you go, you're inviting people to, to experience that. So it's not just that God's like, your sins are forgiven, good luck out there, try not to do that again. He's like, your sins are forgiven, you're all the way into the family. The the, the pattern that was in our confession this morning is that you are seen, you are known, you are forgiven, you are restored. And what happens is that people walk out like that woman just full of shalom is that people become giddy with generosity and they're like, I can't give it away fast enough. You have no idea what I'm, what I'm tapped into here. They look up and make a, an about face in 180 degrees. I just killed this man. Praise God, he was righteous. What? Seen and known, forgiven, restored, and the life that flows out of that is a life of mercy. It is a life of forgiveness. I'll give you Volf one more time. Great last name, huh? God doesn't just forgive sin. He transforms sinners into Christ-like figures and clothes them with Christ's righteousness. And even these benefits are the effects of something much more basic, the presence and activity of Christ in human beings. Such intimate communion with God has been God's goal with humanity from the beginning. Think about that, church. What's in the heart of God? What's he beating for? Intimate communion. That's been God's goal from the beginning. We are made for God to live in us and for us to live in God. Forgiveness is one step towards the restoration of that communion, midway between our being sinners and our being new creations. 
All right, you guys have hung in well. I just want to say a sentence or two about the witnesses, okay? So, and I want us to see ourselves as included in that company. The people who are sitting around seeing this forgiveness take hold. The, 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 the reactions to the woman and to Zacchaeus are, are similar, right? They think either he doesn't know what kind of person this is, or worse, he's kind of like them, and he's in their, their, their company of those who, who need to be uh, forgiven, right? And in Zacchaeus' case, we might assume there was some jealousy. Why did he pick you know, this guy to go have dinner with? Why doesn't he kick, kick the woman out? That, 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 that. But in both instances, Jesus seems to relish being in the place where he is able to forgive. What picture of God did you come in here with this morning? Jesus relishes being in the place where he's able to forgive, where, where he can say to people, you're seen, you're known, the full cost is absorbed, and you are restored. <laughs> so what the people saw around these stories, we have to see as well. A woman healed of shame, leaving in shalom. <laughs> a man restored by mercy, giddy with generosity, going beyond any demand. The very ones who are murdering Jesus being forgiven of the act, even as they're doing it. I'll summarize it all with, with one sentence. You can be, we can be utterly forgiven through union with Christ. And the way we access it, the access point is by faith. It's by confidence that this love is real, that it's available, that it's there, that it's in a person. The first things you'll see happening in someone's life when, when it takes hold is they start to confess. They start to say, this is the things that have been holding me down. These are the things that have been defining me. And they start to, to change. The, the spiritual word is repentance. They start to say, I'm, I'm done with this. I'm giving away the money. I, I'm, I'm leaving this life behind. I'm, I'm praising God in a way that I never have before. That's what forgiveness can, can, can do. And then you become an agent of it. You live in the way of Jesus, which is the way of forgiveness. There are seven final words of Jesus on the cross. And the very first one is forgiveness. Church, I want you to know that is your invitation this morning to receive forgiveness, to become an agent of mercy it is your inheritance, and it is never going away. The theologians say Christus victory, the victory that Jesus has won on the cross is a forever victory, and it is yours. If you want to share in it, it can be your inheritance, an inheritance of forgiveness. And then it's our lifestyle. It's essential to the economy of God that we see wrong, we know wrong, wrong is done to us, and we give back mercy that somehow, like, one of the markers of the, of the Jesus people is that they forgive in the way Christ has forgiven them. And there's so much power in that. I want to say this. The Holy Spirit loves to apply the work of Jesus' forgiveness to our lives. The Holy Spirit loves to, to saturate our human interactions <laughs> with the, the healing balm of forgiveness so that we can go on as a covenant people. So will you allow the Holy Spirit to work forgiveness all through you and all through this community? It is the word falling from Jesus' lips as he is dying for us. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your astonishing grace. I just wanna pray really practically, for everyone in this space who feels like they are carrying a burden that needs 
to be forgiven, that they know a pattern of sin in their mind or in their, their actions that they need mercy for. I pray that they would come and receive it today. I pray that you would make the channel of faith in our hearts strong and open, free, so that we can receive your forgiveness. God, I pray for people who know they've been holding someone in a trap of, their, uh, of a grudge or a lack of forgiveness. I pray that, that um, yeah, we would open up those prisons that we put other people in and we would offer miraculous forgiveness, not lightly, but because we are united to you, Jesus. Make us a people of forgiveness. Come, Holy Spirit, and do the thing in us today that that we wouldn't even know that we needed to name. Bring your freedom. Bring your true abundant life. Bring your kingdom through forgiveness to your church this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.